That Mortadell's number three. Used to be Junior Soprano's driver. And you used to sell laser printers out the back of your Crown Vic. Hey, friends. You're listening to Pot of Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines the Sopranos through deep dives, streams of consciousness, interviews, trivia, music, and NBA analogies. I'm Vic Singh. Please continue the journey we started here by going to theregularness.com and subscribing with your email. It's 100% free, but if you're inclined to support me in making it grow, you can do so for a little less than a cup of coffee every month. If you don't get a return on your investment, tell me, and I'll proactively unsubscribe you and buy you a cup of coffee so you can tell me how much I suck. Now, the penultimate episode of The Sopranos. How could this happen? How did we get here? Blue Comet, a train linking the purported better half of society to Atlantic City. An episode linking the best of television to the rest of the civilized world. Strong enough to get passengers to AC in under three hours. In the case of this episode, strong enough to wreak havoc, to leave you clutching a gun or a teddy bear afterward, depending on your fervor for the right to carry. But in both cases, not strong enough to keep Bacala safe from harm. The penultimate episode was written by David Chase and Matthew Weiner, a writing duo of Kobe and Shaq proportion, Magic and Kareem, Montana and Rice. It was directed by Alan Taylor and originally aired on June 3rd, 2007. We open on Bert Jervisy walking up to get his morning paper at a home in Clifton. Recall the chatty one at Christopher's Wake. All too symmetric that he's rendered mute here. But opening the show, the penultimate show with him? And bestowing upon him the honor of fetching the paper off his driveway on this show? A place that by now has the equivalent of a reserved sign on it for Tony? As regularness of life as it may be? His anger about getting ambushed by the feds the last time he got the paper notwithstanding? It can only mean one thing, right? Bert's the future of this thing of ours. The air unapparent. That or he's done for. And as if to drive the latter point home, he's wearing white slip-on shoes. Recall the whole Johnny Sack thing, but Paulie's got nothing but white shoes paradox. Not to get too ahead of ourselves, but we don't ever see what color shoes Tony's wearing at Holston's. We haven't seen him much, this guy, Bert. Not since he was out making collections with Patsy at the chicken coop back in the old neighborhood. Which, all things considered, could offer some insight into a possible motive for Patsy later, in addition to wanting to protect his family. Let's see. But Bert, he's one of those fill-out-the-roster kind of guys. 
Like one of the fringe characters Caravaggio put in his paintings to balance and contextualize his masterpieces. Not a lot of minutes, but all it takes is a couple guys to go down with ankle injuries or bullets to the back of the head. There's a somewhat broader spectrum in this line of work than the association. This, though, would not be the case for Bert. Though killing him could very well set up a cascade of events that might affect Tony. And putting it front and center, besides the easy rationale of kicking this episode off with a bang, putting it in a place of prominence, like Tony B. put Angelo's gift, is a deft way to allow our imaginations to draw those conclusions. The feeling of some kind of a payoff or explanation, having paid such close attention, even if there isn't one. Next, Sill enters the frame, scaring the piss out of Bert. Double duty here for Sill, consigliere, and now assassin. But hey, they're down a guy, and he has the clandestine capabilities some of the other guys just don't. Besides, this isn't his first rodeo. Jimmy Altieri, Big Puss, Adriana, and Fat Dom all preceded this one. Also, as we're in the midst of Sill's final moments on the show, possibly, go back and watch Van Zant's Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction speech for the Rascals. Chase has said that's what put him on his radar for the show. And if you watch it, you'll see how much of Little Steven is in Silvio. His speech is also quite good. Sill says the reason for his visit, some things you don't get into over the phone. Like strengthening connections, or when things are high stakes, or when you need to let somebody go. Sill's way, but other ways too. Gets us wondering, obviously, what business do they have together? Where's Patsy? This is his guy. Bert sort of invites him in, starts walking that way at least, says his wife's at Mass. Imagine that, going to Mass and returning home to find your spouse strangulated to death. He warns Silvio to watch out for Spencer, a toy terrier shit menace. Note the multiple cuts to the dog. Couldn't help but see some irony there. Watch out. As another one of Spencer's attributes is he's not a very good guard dog either. Barked a little, sure, but didn't have a clue what was about to go down. As dogs have evolved as companions to humans, I feel like guarding is more the exception now than the rule. Upon entry, Silvio readies a string, not much more tensile than dental floss, real testament to his unassuming strength in a sec. Says he's talked to the guys about his misgivings, and apparently they want him dead. He's, of course, talking about the fact Bert switched sides or was about to because of the escalations with Phil. He aligned himself with New York, the same way Paulie almost did once, by the way. Reminds you that these guys are all free agents, freelancers, even if they take an oath with one team, so to speak. It's all about self-preservation. Certainly Paulie, which we'll touch on next episode, but all the way down to Joe trying to make his bones. Sill does his best to keep it from getting messy, but it's inelegant. 
certainly when contrasted with Tony's strangulation of Febby Petrullio in college. Silvio breaks the good stuff in the cabinets, for starters. Insult to injury, for Mrs. Jervisy. But this isn't necessarily his forte. Sure, he can do it. Like if you ask Ben Simmons to shoot a three, he can do it. Just might not always be pretty. The point of this stream of consciousness is that maybe that's why Sill doesn't have a gun on him later. When he could benefit from it the most. He was more on the cerebral side of things. Day-to-day guns are for the muscle. The camera lingers on Bert's shoes, and it's c'est la vie, Bert. The price of disloyalty, we see. Same outcome. There's no difference in their eyes whether you switch teams or outright flip. So, two seconds into the episode, we already have blood that either portends a wave of red this episode or quickly gets one out of the way so we can focus on what becomes of Tony. That's what this is all about. A realization that is only crystallized during the course of this project. We're here for Tony. How does this relate to Tony? What of Tony? Also worth bringing up at this point, is his death going to lead Carlo Jervisy down a similar road Phil went down? Trying somehow, some way to avenge a family member's death? Someone close to him? Again, this speaks directly to patterns and themes close watchers get rewarded with. Even if it's only speculative and conjecture, this world and its machinations are secondhand to us, this far in. Speaking of possible revenge motives, cut to Phil, stirring his morning coffee. Patiently, powerfully, hypnotic-like. Again, Catherine Keener, and get out. The symbolism of stirring in this show, whether it's coffee or tang, Phil, Tony, Johnny Sack, or the members-only guy next episode, stirring usually precedes something consequential. Here, Phil's made up his mind about something. Tells the guys up front to take a walk. No lingering birds for this conversation. Not quite Tony-level paranoia, but certainly self-aware enough to know that what he's thinking requires discretion if it's going to be executed without a hitch. He wants to talk to Butch and all be alone. And then there were three. Love the tone of that back room. I believe our final moment in it, too. Ever since Carmine Sr. It's damp and dark and smoky and, I'll say it, cheap. But there's a kind of majesty to it. Just like the back of Satrial's. Truth be told, it's like a room in our house at this point. All of these spots. There are corners and nooks and niches in our lives where we go to sit with an old friend, play chess, swap ideas, watch a ball game, or get cute and live twitch one or all of the above. Though Apple just announced new changes to the FaceTime platform, so I'm sure we'll be doing it there soon. But what is this, MacRumors.com now? Historically, Carmine always said the Sopranos are nothing more than a glorified crew. Plain and simple. We decapitate, 
and we do business with whatever's left. He's planned this. Namely, starting with history, former leadership, establishing precedent. Plain and simple, we decapitate and do business with whatever's left. This, no doubt, inspired by what happened to Coco, coupled with Tony's bad showing outside his stoop last episode. You think if Tony had actually done what Little Carmine recommended, go there, hat in hand, actually get on his hands and knees, it would have made a difference? Butch loves all of this, thinking, like, yesterday already. Immediately nods, which always made me question his motives next episode. But let's wait on that. Chase has said in virtually every long-form interview he's done that 90% of everything coming out of these guys' mouths is lies. Albie bites into a cookie. That's his consent in spirit. But also, are we biting off more than we can chew? He wants to counsel, but Phil shuts it down. Show, don't tell, Albie. Why the preamble? Phil says it should have been done during John's era. Butch chimes in, trying to drive it home for Albie. They got redundant upper management. Bleeds off half the kick. Love that. The seriousness with which he says it. Also can't help but read the tea leaves and see a weight-related remark there, too. The tea leaves. We take them out, absorb the whole fucking thing. Like a quickening in Highlander. Like a download in The Matrix. Like Marlo Stanfield in The Wire. Like McCann Erickson in Mad Men. Albie, the only pragmatist left, the last vestige of the Johnny Sack era, take out an entire fucking family? Putting some respect on their name. The only one acknowledging them as a family proper. Same way NBA purists include the Kings as part of the league and not some pygmy thing out in Sacramento. Phil, the fucking richness of the dialogue already this episode. The crispness, tightness. Let me tell you a couple or three things. Forget Coco, forget Fat Dom, who goes over to Jersey and never comes back. Forget my brother Billy. Three reasons. But that's not what I'll be saying. Phil doesn't care. Anthony Soprano has no respect for this thing. Note the subtle respect Phil shows by saying his full name. Guy's old school. Bullet pointing his case. He's never been in the can. Not really. As if that were a demarcation of leadership, a rite of passage but also speaks to a theory about Tony at the end, too. Was he proactively removed because of what he knows? Coupled with his unfamiliarity with the penal experience? Phil continues, He's an Iverson, I mean guy, who stepped over his own Tyron Lue, I mean uncle, 
to grab the big seat. His father's brother. God loves saying the word brother, doesn't he? The emphasis, the enunciation. Then, Albie's apparent acquiescence and liquid smooth hand gesture, raising his right hand to the gods. Please, huh? A great piece of physical acting. But in T's defense, it was right there for Junior at the sit-down with Jackie April. Remember when Jackie said aloud maybe it was time to name a successor? He could have spoken up then, but didn't. All he did was give a coy look. Decidedly, a man without a plan. More is lost by indecision than by wrong decision. He continues. We see this has become so personal. They make anybody and everybody over there. Possibly alluding to Bobby, who was ostensibly made, but never made his bones, until that thing in Montreal. Note, importantly, we never see Bobby get made, even though T mentions he is briefly to Junior next episode. That Mortadelle's number three? Wait for it. David Chase said as much in an interview once, that it didn't matter and wasn't a concern. Though, Bacala, if anything, is a legacy guy, grandfathered in on account his dad was the Terminator. On Mount Rushmore of toughest guys in Essex County. Rocco DeMeo's carved into that stone, too. Phil continues his screed. The way they do it is all fucked up. In fairness, again, though, thanks to Fortunate Son, they more or less followed protocol. But playing devil's advocate, a couple of made guys in Jersey have been questionable. Strictly from two standpoints. One, how'd that guy get made? Two, what's that guy actually do? Clearly earn, but head scratchers nonetheless. Back on Butch, he's loving all of it. Eating it up like Jay-Z in Girls, 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 Arroz con Pollo, an appetite for destruction, but he scrapes the plate. Phil continues, guys don't get their finger pricked. There's no sword or gun on the table. Again, Fortunate Son discredits this mostly. Maybe they cut some corners to get to the after party. But this guy's making a point here. And fuck anyone that tries to stop him. Once you've made up your mind, people are either with you or against you. Albie tries to reason again, but no. Either it has meaning or no meaning. And the veto thing. The man harbors a faggot. Imagine explaining pronouns to these guys today and all the variations thereof. Please, huh? Five fucking families. And we got this other pygmy thing over in Jersey. Butch's face is an erection of its own kind. Contrast with Albies. Flaxid. Phallic symbols abound. Phil lights a cigar. We hear the sound of the lighter. That detail sucks the oxygen out of the room. Then, there's no scraps in my scrapbook. 
one of the most enjoyable lines ever. Communicated by the best delivery ever. Just the way it hangs in the air after he says it. Like that moment just before a Logo 3 splashes the net. Also a clear message. Take no fucking prisoners. No emotion. No sentimentality. No mercy. Guy would make even John Kreese shudder. But all because Coco got touched up after being inappropriate with the daughter of a boss? Certainly a straw that broke the camel's back. But how'd it come to this? You gotta wonder. My only contribution to whatever criticism there was of this choice, namely extending the Phil storyline beyond its shelf life, is that again, it's immaterial. This is about Tony. Everything else is just details. Whether it's this foe or that foe, there's always a fucking foe. And the man in the members-only jacket proves it. Point two seconds into our relationship with him, we deem him Tony's foe. Point being, it doesn't matter that Phil decided to launch a blue comet at Jersey or somebody else. It's coming. It's inevitable. Albie and Butch look at each other, one last-ditch effort to reason. But first, Phil. Make it happen. But not in the Mariah Carey song kind of way. He walks off. Butch has probably never looked happier. This is going to be his version of going to Disney World after winning the Super Bowl. Cut to AJ with a group watching TV. Metal Ocalypse. The last thing you might expect to see at a facility of this kind. Dismembered figures, albeit animated. Also, the immediate cut to him makes you wonder for a second if he's in danger. Women and children are exempted from this thing and all that, but after what happened with Meadow and Coco, who knows anymore? The Billy Leotardo hang-up just might be enough for Phil to go rogue and open the books to nearer and dearer casualties. No scraps is a pretty sweeping mandate. AJ and another guy notice a girl next to him crossing her leg. Great legs and all, but we also notice some cuts on them. She knows she's being checked out and can't stand it. Scoots off. They always know, right? The Soprano cameras never miss great legs. From Melfi to Abe to Gloria to Kim's daughter to Skiff. The lens never misses the mark. Moments later, we see Rhiannon sitting down to read a book. That's right, Hernan's Rhiannon. Fleetwood Mac's Rhiannon. The song, incidentally, was based off a novel called Triad. Yeah, that's right. Three. Speaking of books, she's reading the essay collection Me Talk Pretty One Day by David Sedaris. A particularly good read if you have obsessive tendencies. AJ notices her, calls her by her name, one of those names that every chance you get to say it, you say it, walks over. 
She asks what he's doing, and he says, you first. She's got food issues, depression. He asks about her non. She calls him a slime ball. Not a contributing factor to her depression necessarily, but possibly. I caught him finger-banging my cousin on the ski lift. The disrespect to Rhiannon, of course, but also the sanctity of the ski lift. AJ says he heard she's been modeling. She confirms she signed with Elite. That's the modeling agency that's repped the likes of Naomi Campbell, Claudia Schiffer, Tyra Banks, Heidi Klum. And now, we know that as far as male modeling, Christopher'd probably be a success, as he once told Adriana. Though curiously, Elite never signed him. Cut to Carmen T. checking in to see AJ. He's been doing well in this new environment of calm, they learn. Then, T's handed a bill. And he's anything but. They offer to pop it in the mail. But he takes it there. Code for wanting to duck sticker shock. He looks at the bill while taking the elevator up to six. 2200 a fucking day. That's 62000 a month. Boss or no boss? No way he can absorb that long term and stay solvent. I mean, if success here is measured in the currency of calm, there's an app that's considerably cheaper now. Carm says, just another week. What's money, right? Especially when it flows from offers that can't be refused. Carmela siphoning blood money for the goodwill of her kids is nothing new. And it's how she's been able to live with herself. Also, think about the clarity that having no money to pay for something like that provides. Like if that's not an option. It's a combination of Johnny Sack and Carmine Sr. Throw some cold water on it and get the fuck over it. They see AJ play an Xbox. You know T's thinking the same thing we are. 2200 for shit he can do at home? They go in. Next, we're on Agent Harris inside Satrial's. If ever there was a theme for the Sopranos back nine, if you will, it's this. Agent Harris at Satrial's. Is he going to let him just eat this time? Of course not. After ordering a gabagool provolone vinegar peppers, goes over to talk about the weather. The beautiful frame of them behind the espresso sign window. Vertical natural barriers siloing them in their respective domains. But the lines are blurry and opaque as their relationship is taking a new turn. End times, huh? No doubt the end of a cultural era, only they're talking about the war on terror. Harris says, ready for the rapture. That comes from eschatology, or the study of the end through a Christian prism. Tony a Thessalonian now? Also, You take Harris for an evangelical? It's not a Catholic doctrine. And as beautiful and ideal as the prophecy is, one of the things that always throws me is that the union with God is forever. There's no options. Made me think of Outcast's Miss Jackson. 
Forever, ever? T asks about the anti-terror beat. Tara says it's great if you don't like eating, sleeping, or seeing your kids. That good. Don't think those are Catholic doctrines either. But so much character reveal in one sentence, right? How we keep connecting to Harris. Have been. Since the beginning. Another little detail. The green wall backdrop. With the pigs. The way the camera's positioned, you see one of the pigs off to the side. Kind of like just off Tony's three o'clock, actually. If you stare at it casually, it looks like a middle finger. I might have mentioned it before, but it's one of those things, once you see it, you can't unsee it. And this being the last time we're inside Satrials, wanted to put that backdrop front and center one more time here, too. Tony asks for some inside baseball on the two Arabs he gave up last episode. As eager, by the way, as Rawls to give up McNulty. Harris's mom, keeping certain things close to the vest. He's blurring lines here and making new ones up as he goes. Oh, you're not going to tell me? Tony, no doubt, feeling himself a little after helping out. Again, speaking to one theory about his eventual outcome. He's been hanging around these feds in broad daylight. What if an adversary made him and drew conclusions that led to untimely consequences? In these final episodes, was he as careful as he could have been? As careful as we've seen him be until now? Echoes of Chase's own words informing this line of thought. He put himself in the positions we found him. Voluntarily. Independently. Harris throws somewhat of a bone. Says he doesn't know yet. Guy could turn out to be a pistachio salesman. Which, evidently, are especially common in the Middle East. The nut, specifically. But I guess by the commutative property of math or some shit, the salesman, too. Whatever the case, they're doing a great job slinging pistachios because they're in some of the best ice creams and snacks around, including a place Tony probably knows them best, the Mortadelle at Satrials. Harris tells him not to get so bent out of shape about the secrecy. You're a big boy, Tony. Read that as, you know the game. You're using me as much as I'm using you. Like when Jordan got Rodman off his rival team, or when Kobe teamed up with our test. This ain't show friends. It's show business. Bob fucking Sugar over here. Then Harris brings up World War II. Says T's outfit. The choice of word there. Measured, as proven by the delivery. They protected the Brooklyn Navy Yard, where 75,000 Americans built battleships and aircraft carriers. Suggesting, of course, a more formidable contribution to their cause than Tony's making a few Polaroid positive IDs. I think Roosevelt told Vito Genovese where Hitler was holed up. Go fuck yourself. First off, the comparison of Tony to Vito Genovese. Heir apparent to Lucky Luciano. Compliment or thinly veiled dig? 
Second, Tony might argue that shunting jihad was as important as dissolving the Third Reich. In fact, he thinks as much. But the go fuck yourself gets up, walks off. Yep, I knew that pig middle finger on the wall wasn't a fucking scam. Then, as T heads out with his sandwich, Harris follows him and now minces no words. It's on again, possibly. The thing he warned him about last year. You, maybe people close to you. Just the focus those words put T in. Us in. As irritating as it might have been for some that it just boiled down to a longtime beef over the untimely demise of Phil's kid brother. We're locked in now. Just one and a half episodes left. And if anything, looking at it through the lens of this project, it fits thematically. The regularness of everyday life. Old grudges die hard. People lie in wait for something, anything, to dissolve the inertia of too much time. All it takes is one trigger to revert to past feelings. T's chewing his sandwich vigorously, trying to eke some flavor out of it, but it's gone stale in his mouth. If it was real solid, Harris says, he would have been warned officially by the Newark office. Wait, why would they warn him? He doesn't work for them. They a bunch of altruists now? How does letting him know achieve their goal of abolishing organized crime? Which, of course, begs the question. Is that, in fact, even their goal? With Harris, it could just be a Jersey thing and the fact that he dislikes Leotardo. He already said as much. But the official warning is interesting. My colleague in Brooklyn, the one with the collaborator, Snitches implying the wheels have already been set in motion. Implying. I'm too much of a Harris fan to ever entertain this. But the mind does lead you to wonder if he himself is working Tony. Setting him up for a fall with indisputable evidence to seal his fate. And maybe Tony sees that permutation. He plays it cool, implying no urgency. Kind of bothered me, but maybe that's part of his strategy. Harris gives him a look and walks away. Like Kobe gave LeBron once at an All-Star game when he sunned him. The point of view shot from the alley on Tony. His world's about to get smaller. Lines are about to be crossed. Also saw that naturally as he might be the last man standing. Or that finally, his streak of luck was over. Looking at his by-now tasteless sandwich, as if it might have been poisoned, chucks it into the trash. Audience surrogate moment in a sense, too. Put your food down, pay attention. Stuff you've been wondering about for the past 10 years is about to happen. Nice added touch with the sirens in the distant background, too. Over at the Bing, Exterior shot from across Route 17. Inside, T's grabbing money out of a safe. Calmish, still. Sil comes over. T mentions, not what he learned from Harris, but that one of the girls got hurt last night 
had to call an ambulance. The cynic inside makes you wonder if it was on the book's work or off, whether extracurriculars are covered by workman's comp. Sill, also calm, but no real reason not to be yet, pours himself a drink, one for tea too. Says he's going to want to snort. That's not Coke in this case, but a double shot of bourbon, no ice. He's got some news. Bert Jervisy, he's gone. Tells him he's been playing both sides of the fence with New York. Though T's initially got to be thinking if it's the start of that thing Harris just told him. But somewhere in all those permutations, he's also thinking, fucking Bert was your target? You can have him. Sill says measures were taken, at which point T notices the bandage on Sill's hand. Sill says he didn't want to bug him with all this after what happened with AJ. But now it's worse. Spread like a virus. Apparently, he wasn't alone. Other guys were getting squeezed hard to move under new management. Bert even tried to recruit Silvio. And he got an answer. Still hopes that now it'll lead to a dialogue with Phil to work this shit out. Saw that as a little naive. But then again, he did say to him, he's got no idea what it's like to be number one. Bobby comes in, and next we see the three of them at lunch at Artie's place. The choice of that seamless edit is interesting, kind of foreshadowing Tony, envisioning where he is, the whole 2001 Space Odyssey inspiration Chase has spoken of before. T from one seated position to another, conveyed through edits. What prompted the change of venue, though? Besides the obvious, let's eat. Why not just break it down in the back of the bang? And was part of this to establish the next scene? namely Butch's three targets. T gives a mandate of his own. We got to hit first. On the word hit, the Raging Bull opening theme comes on in the background. Cavalleria Rusticana. Jake LaMotta. Incidentally, a film Frank Vincent was also a bad guy in. It's even, notably, a big part of the end of three. Beginnings and ends. Symmetry. T says this all dovetails with other information I got that this cocksucker already has a target on my back. Bobby's quiet. T asks, So Buddha? Giving credence to his zen-like demeanor, I guess. Seeking buy-in like Butch was from Albi. The hunchback of Karen Zidi speaks. Appeasement don't work. Then T and Sill notice the music for the first time and begin to shadow box. As relaxed and amused as they are about the whole thing, I get choked up every time. Sure, some of it's the goodbye aspect of it, the finality of it, the exhaustion of it all, the oh shit, here we go, who's going to be left or what's going to be left at the end of this thing. It's incredibly sad. And the show, true to form, takes that sadness and turns it on its ear. Cut to flat bush bikini waxing and beauty shop. You can't write this stuff. 
Only they did. The real place was called Roots Radicals. Albie comes over and does a secret knock to get someone to open the place. Note the three mannequin heads with wigs lined up like ducks in a row. Everything in threes. Three targets in danger. Tony, Sill, and Polly, maybe? Wait for it. The conspiracy is hatched. Butch confirms it. Three pops within a tight time frame. 24 hours, so there's no chance for them to hit back. Wait, questions. Why only three? And what makes them think nobody hits back after the 24 hours? Wasn't that thing in one orchestrated under a much tighter time constraint? Even that Joey Zaza shit in three happened over just a couple or three minutes. 24 hours? What's this collateral now? And which three? And who's doing it? Butch answers some of this. Keeps us on a need-to-know basis on others. The top three guys. One of the guys mentions Paulie. No, Butch says. Management. As much of a slight as that is, in a way it shows some savvy on Paulie's part. Close, but never too close to the top-tier positions. Speaks to his longevity in many ways. Tony, obviously, Silvio, and we think Bobby Baclieri. Butch, communicating he's not so confident in the final choice, gets up. By the way, it's Butch, Albie, and three other guys sitting around a bunch of curling irons. Fucking great visual. One of the guys, of course, is played by Dominic Guinessi Jr. On Bobby, one of the most Memorable moments of the show. Ray Ray says, That Mortadel's number three. He used to be Junior Soprano's driver. Even more acute given the reference to pistachios earlier. He used to be Junior Soprano's driver. Ray Ray, by the way, is played by Danny Aiello's son. Then Albie, fucking one of my favorite lines of all time. And you used to sell laser printers out the back of your Crown Vic. all be coming to Bobby's defense, perhaps also acknowledging humble beginnings of his own. True story. I knew this Korean kid in college who did the same thing. Sell laser printers. Only instead of out the back of a Crown Vic, it was out the back of a Honda Prelude. Guy cleaned up too. Rex. Butch, moving around like he runs the place, starts tidying up. Above him, a glam shot of a girl who looks like she got a Mo Green special of her own. Cut to AJ and Meadow in the kitchen. Again, from Butch and Conspiracy to the kids. Also, AJ's home. Some more 2001 time travel. Meadow and Carm are happy he actually got some sleep. Note, Meadow's drinking orange juice. Looks like low pulp or No pulp, though, which means there's plenty of it to go around because Tony wouldn't touch that. Also, there's an orange in the fruit bowl next to her, partially disguised by the counter. But normally, there's not one there. He's looking for his belt. Carm tries to play off the fact that she hid it. What parent wouldn't, knowing what she now knows? AJ sits down to watch a thing on the Iraq War on PBS. 
serfs from golf to giraffes to GIs. Meadow notices, doesn't say anything, but the permutations are cranking. And the linger suggests something else is on her mind too. Like maybe she's pregnant and looking for a way to tell Carmela. Suicide bombers, loud noises, blue comets. Carm's just happy he's home, doing the dishes, making oatmeal, like it's nothing. Like Tom Powers' ma, the public enemy. Over at the back of the Bing, Sills buffing his shoes. Yes, white against a red brush. Bobby's playing pool. Note the dartboard right behind him and to the left. In other words, his three o'clock side. T says he wants to call people in Italy to take care of Brooklyn. Note that as he's explaining the plan, we see a frame with Sill next to the cleaver poster, with the cleaver positioned right next to his head. Again, three o'clock side. To which I throw up my hand, like Albie. Please, huh? Bobby asks who he wants to run the thing. And T just looks at Bobby. Doesn't say anything. Bobby says, got it. Red, not me. So much is said in this show through what's unsaid. T says he has to leave, get some tires for Carmela's car. A symbolism of tires in this moment, almost like sandbags or mattresses in war. But again, the lack of discretion concerns you. Being out in the open like that, when there's a contract out on you? Cut to a dinner where Elliot and Melfi are guests. The great palate cleanse amidst all this underlying tension. We're saying goodbye to Melfi this episode, so visiting with her in multiple elements is fitting. They're both across from each other at a table with a bunch of other people. Colleagues. The referral circuit chain gang. Recruits for Elliot's cause. All of the above. Melfi asks the host about her daughter. Her love life is a mess, we learn. Can't help but hear the lyric from the opening song to Friends there. She's having a pen and paper relationship with an armed robber in Attica, correctional facility just outside of Buffalo. It's where you go when you're too bad for other prisons. Another guest asks, somewhat rhetorically, what's with the fascination with criminals? That's where Elliot chimes in, naturally. Like he's got an agenda tonight. Perfect writerly beachhead for him to lay out his towel, slap on some sunscreen, and bask in the glory of Melfi's fireball eyes. He wants to take a shot, drive home his point from last episode. After he himself, by the way, was late on some ostensibly commonplace knowledge in the field. This to his patient, mind you. HIPAA? Elliot throws it out the window, along with whatever baseline of professionalism he's established to this point. In his defense, and not to throw any doctors I know under the bus, but back when I used to hang out with people, I've heard worse in terms of breaching patient discretion. So I would imagine that dinners comprised of all doctors are on par with what we saw here. He says the attraction to criminals is a rescue fantasy. 
They think they can fix them. The twist of his hand gesture is tuned to perfection. Though contextually different, equivalent in effect to Albies earlier. Please, huh? So, is that what he thought about Melfi and Tony all along? Hasn't he already said something like that before? Maybe not in so many words? Then, the host brings up the same study Elliot talked about in therapy last time. She says she Googled it, which is a cringeworthy way to call out the lack of preparedness on Melfi's part. Something, of course, that's easily Googleable should be part and parcel of the knowledge base in her field of expertise. The host says that therapy actually helps them become better criminals. This is Elliot pops an olive into his mouth, like Junior when he was on that conference call with Johnny Sack. Olives or dates or pistachios. Fucking trail mix over here. She throws a look at Elliot, who then looks smugly at the host. Melfi tries to brush it off as a study flavor of the month, doing her best to keep it classy, but the host doubles down. Says, sociopaths glibly engage on key issues like mother, family, almost as if she's being fed this stuff through an in-ear monitor from a control room. Then another guest chimes in, says she remembers that from residency. First Google, now residency. The degree of chipping away at her over these two episodes is like ocean waves eroding sandstone. Melfi clings to her position. I've read Hare, who was mentioned as one of the contributors. And who's to say who's a true sociopath? Of course, knowing full well it's been defined six ways from Sunday. Even the nuances, I'd imagine, in the DSM. Note how she throws another look at Elliot as she grasps for air. Is anybody in this room going to throw her a bone? Elliot nibbles some more as another guest chimes in. Guy's conducting an orchestra at this point. Calls them slow poisoners. They even mimic empathy. Realizing she's been ambushed by this seemingly holier-than-thou therapist mob, Melfi practically throws up in her mouth and comes out with it. It's an out-of-body experience. Did you put her up to this? Right to Elliot. Speaking about the host to him in the third person when she's right in front of her. Something about the use of third person as a silencer of sorts when bullets start flying across the table. She's blowing us off. You just can't resist rubbing my face in it. I feel like we should change the subject. Speaking of, he was lamenting not reading about tea much in the news lately. Boy, is that going to change, right? Elliot establishes his position before his audience, breaking ethical and professional boundaries while he's at it. Reevaluate your work with Lead Belly or be prepared to deal with moral and possibly legal consequences. Essentially using the table as a Supreme Court of sorts to cast judgment on her for working with Tony. But now the rest of the table is more curious than judgmental. The vagaries of humankind. Have to know who Lead Belly is. Fucking Elliot all but tells him. A female opera singer and gangster rolled into one. He badly hums the Jeopardy theme song. Who does that? In gatherings across America, every table's got at least one Jeopardy theme singer. The Lead Belly reference, by the way, is the musician. 
12-string guitar specialist. Melfi flips. They pivot to wine, as if enough hadn't been poured already. They want Melfi's verdict on it. One guy, all Italians have big noses. He's got the biggest nose in the room, by the way, if we're measuring. Fits the criteria for what Richie would call a canopy. To which she points out our observation by saying that had she said that about another group represented at the table, she'd be called a bigot. Appreciated the truth in that commentary. The show saying what a lot of people can't otherwise say. A voice for the voiceless. But what's this, political stump speech 101 now? The guy who made the nose comment, Ken, tries to course correct, but too little, too late. The host comments that the work must be fascinating. Coded, as that choice of word was, Melfi says it is. But I think for the first time, she reveals her complicity. Her version of, the regularness of my fucking life was too much. And this gangster walked into my office and bucked things up. Counterbalanced the mundane, rote, everyday shit I hear. Day in, day out. Cut to the bing. Bobby gets Polly up out of his seat in the front to come with him. It's inaudible. The music, fittingly, is when the music's over by the doors. The rest of that lyric ominously is turn out the lights. Note how the camera lingers for a beat. Enough for you to make the men's room neon sign in between the girls. Please, huh? In the back, Sill breaks it down. Calls were made to Zips R.E. Phil. Recall that's the term for Sicilians who zip in and zip out after clipping a target. He tells Paulie to contact the guy to contact the guys, plural. Perhaps the very guys who flew home on a plane with David Chase once, after they took out Rusty Milio. Bobby says Phil's at his gumads every Friday night. Real vetted intel. Polly asks if T knows about this. He's absent from the room. Sill is taken aback. Bobby, too. What kind of question is that? Polly quickly reminds him and us about the pecking order. Watch your fat fucking mouth. Hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Guy's always going to be Junior's piss boy to Polly, no matter who he marries. Bobby, feeling himself because he was just at a fancy lunch with Tony and Polly wasn't, steps to throw down. Made man, schmade man. Sill wonders why Polly's so worked up about this. Wondering, no doubt, if he was in on the Burt thing too. He's at least partially cognizant of his checkered past on the loyalty front, going back to when he was in the can. But Polly says he's lived through enough war. The 70s thing, when the Columbos were going at it, that was enough mattress shit for him. There ain't a bigger cocksucker than Phil Leotardo giving Al Swearingen a run for his money right there. Suggesting Phil won't stop, even after a white flag is thrown up. Needed to find a way to slide in one more Dido reference. So there you have it. 
Pauly just wants it to be known that there could be a line at Cazarelli's a mile long. War is always big business for certain sectors. And mortuaries are the Northrop Grumman's of mob wars. Cut back to Melfi, reading the Yoshelson study in bed, the criminal personality, pencil in mouth, throwback to her med school days, on a mission. We see, and contrary to some, I love the text cuts here, drilling the points home for her as well as us, reminding viewers, in effect, we've been watching something this whole time that could have been shut down in the pilot. Perhaps should have been shut down in the pilot in the form of Melfi recusing herself from treating him. You know, had she not been a fucking human being. The criminal's sentimentality reveals itself in compassion for babies and pets. Ducks, horses, Cosette, even Angie B's dog. Recall he was sweeter to it than he ever was to her. And she put money on the street. The criminal uses insight to justify heinous acts. Melfi helped him, overtly or not, couch his actions around her rationales or in the form of questions posed. Finally, everything in threes, right? Therapy has potential for non-criminals. For criminals, it becomes one more criminal operation. Professional consensus has been in lockstep with this, about the show and Melfi in particular, that she's been an enabler from day one. One more criminal operation. Yeah. Melfi's been another front for him. Though I think it's very important to note that as despicable as Tony can be, he's much more to us than that at this point. That much is clear. And that most people in his shoes would never have endured therapy for as long as he did. And importantly, it wasn't some writerly device to keep the show going either. It goes back to this notion of him wanting to be somewhere else. Existing in a framework that was put in front of him. And being loyal to it. But wanting out. Wanting to be something better. Even if those moments are fleeting. And then, he's reaching. And though he probably never gets there, like us, He's still reaching. Also, can't help but notice the three masks above her bed when the camera pulls back to reveal her processing her findings, and then the pair of three types of leaves framed next to it. Leaves, masks, what are you, Ranger Rick incognito? Cut back to the bing. Polly's with Patsy. Reassuring him, saying everything's going to be fine. Could, of course, be read two ways. Us not knowing the full degree of their conversation and being at the point where self-preservation rules the day. Could be him telling him that they're going to get through this 
could also be him reassuring him that they've got something else lined up, something else planned. Not saying that's what happened, just saying it's all there. Carlo's over in the corner with the two Jasons, taking in the sights. And given what we know now, including them in the frame might suggest that they're the future of this thing of ours as it pertains to New Jersey. We see the contract killer broker, Chris's friend, Corky Corporal, pop in. He tells Polly the zips are waiting outside. Then in the restroom, Polly tells Patsy, it's all yours. Passing the baton in this race for their lives. Patsy looks carefully at the urinal flush before giving it a good crank, perhaps giving us a chance to remember he pissed in Tony's pool. But something was afoot there. At least there's a clear indication something might be. A lot of people think he was on the wrong side of the ledger. And it began here, or resurfaced here. But I never saw it or believed it the way some did. Even though the parallel of Phil wanting to avenge his brother's death the same way Patsy would his own brother sums to have all the makings of a conspiracy, I don't think it's as John le Carre or mayor of Easttown as that line of thought suggests. But I'm not supposing to know or would I ever posit to know what Chase was thinking. Only to say I think it's safe to say that ambiguity prevailed. Outside, we see it is, indeed, the same hitmen from before. The same ones that were shocked Corky could speak Italian. Patsy gives them a look, and just a look. Again, his stoicism here is disarming. He's not being cinematic. We see Paulie driving away. Something ominous about that cut, too. Recall. He was not on Butch's hit list. He make a deal to protect Patsy, too? He was hesitant about Silvio's plan. And I don't need to remind you about the Johnny Sack almost defection. And now he's rushing off, but not before sizing up the scene? All this new motion, tense, added motion, the choreography of it, we got to keep an eye on everybody now. Imaginary scopes and targets everywhere. Everything's fluid. Nobody's safe. Importantly, nobody's trustworthy. Again, self-preservation. This isn't the secret service. Nobody's taking a bullet for anybody. Not even for tea. Perhaps most disconcertingly, especially not for tea. Next, we're on Tony at Melfi's, probably their longest scene together. For my money, they could go on for entire episodes. But notice how the length of Melfi sessions are directly proportional to the amount of blood in an episode. He starts off in the waiting room, pilot throwback, dressed like he's in that painting with Piomai before it got painted over, target on his back. Damned if he's going to look anything but his best before his audience with St. Peter. 
Fittingly, he's flipping through Departures magazine. Sees a steak recipe he likes and tears it out. The choice of that magazine isn't accidental. Departures. That magazine, by the way, just recently shut down the print operation a few months ago. Evidently another casualty of war. Just then, Melfi calls him in. Inside, he wonders what she clears annually. Says he's asking because Meadow's thinking medicine. Or was thinking medicine. He thinks that's kind of sad. Thinks it's a nice thing to be. Makes you wonder what he would think were he at the dinner a few scenes ago. Then, he wonders about the point of it all. The stress of getting into Columbia, then more school. I mean, all that worry. Which private school and Columbia University and this and that. And in the end, she'll get married, squeeze out some kids. After what, a couple of years in the workforce? Tone deaf to his audience, or perhaps not. Maybe he knows exactly what he's saying. Melfi points out she's still working. Yeah, but you're divorced. Melfi didn't see that coming. First he rips her magazine apart and now her personal life? This just after getting cornered by Elliot's gang of superiority complexes? It's his time, she's thinking. Says nothing. Can't help but feel he stuck that in there because he didn't think she was giving him enough feedback up to this point. Enough empathy. Fuel for his fire. He says it's criminal law for her now. Dating the son of a gangster and now selecting criminal law as her calling. Subconsciously or not, she's inextricably linking herself to this thing of ours. And you gotta wonder if it's for something more powerful, more primal than some guy she's in love with. Tony says that after she's done with the quote, Muslims and the blacks, she'll end up at a big firm and do white collar crime. Part of me heard that as not his kind of crime, to the extent he believes that what he does is crime. But he's saying, she's not going to be my consigliere type thing, lest Melfi judge. He just really liked the sound of Dr. Soprano. He says, your parents must have been very proud. Look at all the people like me you've helped. She lets that bake in, fresh off her new outlook, new realization on this whole relationship. But also, partially, it's nice to hear that after being scolded by Elliot. And look at all the people who are helping my son, he continues. And now she's bored. There's that slow poison. Even though it costs a fortune, and his plumber's union insurance only covers 10% of mental, he points out. She might want to say here, sell a boat. Face certainly implies it. She starts finishing his sentences. He's confused at first, then asks, what's the matter with you? Is it because of what I said about being divorced? His hand gesture, sculpted to perfection. That's three this episode. Albies, Elliot's, now Tony's. He says he's been depressed for years. What if AJ doesn't pull out of it either and ends up like him or worse? Certainly up there among every father's worst fear. So the boy who never cared about anything now cares about too much. 
Yeah, I guess. And the daughter, like all females, ultimately somehow disappoints. I didn't say that. Oh. She suggests he's projecting hostile feelings. When is the word projecting ever not led to a fight? He says if we had instant replay, you'd see it in two seconds. Only problem with that is, if only it took two seconds. The average NBA review takes 42. Then he says, Jesus Christ, you sound like my fucking wife. And rounding out the thought, when has the phrase, you sound like, ever led anywhere constructive? She brings up the Departures magazine. It's not the first time you've defaced my reading materials. Defaced is an interesting word, too. He's done more than just deface her reading materials, right? We can extend that to the body of work that has gone into building up this science. We can extend it to their relationship, crossing boundaries. Boundaries, by the way, that she very clearly is crossing herself now, having had enough. But why so petty about such a stupid thing? Probably feeling buried under the weight of Elliot's wave. She's grasping for an out. She trades passive aggressiveness for bluntness. I don't think I can help you now. He thinks with the quality of her reading materials, but she means therapeutically. He says he's only missed three appointments since their heart-to-heart. Three again. He's talking about their session after AJ tried to kill himself. Why is he so attached right now? Is it because he doesn't like rejection? He wants to dole it out, but doesn't want to receive it? Who does? Guess also maybe you don't realize you're doing it until it gets thrown back at you. She says the new thing these days is psychodynamic therapy combined with anaphronil, a TCA antidepressant. Who? Why the combination? I dialed up my wife's PubMed subscription again to take a brief look. And it turns out, for one thing, it's a much more cost-effective approach, saving on average 2300 bucks per patient. She says there's a doctor in Bloomfield he can see. Could she have handled this better? More adroitly? Maybe even expressed a desire to take a break from her practice? Lie? Like everybody else in the show? Tony slows things down, tries to, says you're firing me because I defaced your Departures magazine? The same way he might say, you want to whack my squad because I touched up a nobody who assaulted my daughter? At the very fucking minimum committed a battery? She says it's not that. She's giving him her considered medical opinion. Close, but not adroit enough. Not for Allie Boy. Go ahead, tell me I sound like your wife, she says. Egging him on the same way Elliot did to her. Note, now she's projecting. Like Herc said in The Wire Pilot, shit rolls downhill. If the shoe fits, he says, meaning own it. She gets up, probably thinking, what's the Cinderella now? <laughs> 
in her head. It's over. He looks up, throws his arms out. We're making progress. It's been seven years. Seven souls. Seven seasons. Seven deadly sins. He gets up and preambles, uncharacteristic. But she's got him on the ropes. She cuts him off. Go ahead. Fuck the preambles, right? She learned from the best. Mr. Let me tell you something. He chalks it all up to menopause with biblical arm gestures for good measure. Melfi, you're not my gynecologist. Certainly a more adroit way to communicate Christopher's sentiment. What are you, a doctor now? Tony, practically swiping his nose with his thumb at this point. Well, you don't need a gynecologist to know which way the wind blows. So much for being on the ropes. That, by the way, is a rework of a Bob Dylan lyric from Subterranean Homesick Blues. Tony channeling his inner Tom York now. She walks over to the door, opens it, crosses her arms, fidgets. Can she be certain for her physical safety? He's crossed the line before. Tony, showing a lot more restraint than you'd think, makes sure. This is their goodbye, after all. So wait a minute. You're telling me, after all this time, after everything we've shared in here, you're cutting me loose just as my son got out of the hospital for trying to kill himself? By the way, who sounds like whose wife now, huh? With your father in a coma? She feels guilty, but holds the line. It's not gonna work this time. The long con is over. She's got to be thinking, hold the line, however inelegant it might be. No matter how much my own shame about my complicity in this bleeds through. The vicarious cheap thrill has to end. Though cheap is the wrong word. Remember the study. She keeps repeating in her head. Almost like Sinatra in that song I've got you under my skin. Don't you know, little fool? You never can win. Use your mentality. Wake up to reality. But each time that I do, just the thought of you makes me stop just before I begin. Because I've got you under my skin. Her inelegance? Since you are in crisis, I don't want to waste your time. He didn't see that coming, but takes it on the chin and leaves. But not before saying what she's doing is immoral. Classic. What an interesting way for them to say goodbye. Him calling out her amorality. He takes out the steak recipe, primps it for her, and places it back in the magazine. She slams the door in what you can't help but see as a Godfather reference, the end of one, only the roles are a bit reversed. He's K in this instance. Something we've seen on this show before, too. A meeting with Junior in a hospital comes to mind. And that's it. Our time with Jennifer Melfi has run its course. Their seven-year relationship ends with a door slam. Yeah, it's rushed. It could have gone differently. It could have not ended. It could have been a lot of different things. 
But it is what it is. Fuck we want a boutonniere. I believe Chase once said, therapy often ended unilaterally after one side was over it. It's an endless process until something like what Melfi did occurs. And to soften the landing, this isn't the first time she's explored this as a way out. She's recommended others before, even other forms of therapy. Tony called it getting pawned off then, as he does here too. A final thought that occurred while preparing this on Melfi and this Yoshelson business. I wonder if the logic applies a bit to all of us, even non-criminals, that therapy is a way to sharpen us and make us more resolute in our ways, as opposed to numbing our flaws by teaching our brains to play tricks on itself. A leopard can't change its spots, right? Cut to the zips in the car, staking shit out, like Kima and Carver. They see Phil pulls up. Well, looks like Phil anyways, per Bobby's thorough research. The shooter, Italo, takes a look at the picture to corroborate. Same hair, must be the guy. A little sloppy. A little imprecise. But these guys aren't writing smart contracts on the Ethereum blockchain. They're out here whacking wise guys. Italo gets out and knocks. DHL. Should have been an official pitch for DHL, you ask me. The guy opens and shouts in Ukrainian. Now, Ukrainian and Italian sound nothing alike. And that should have tipped him off right there. But what am I, a comparative linguistics guest lecturer now? The guy's not Phil. How's Patsy going to fuck this up like this? Again, was it intentional? Was Bobby in on it too? Again, just going through all the permutations. He's sabotaging stuff because he didn't get to run the thing? There's no love lost for Tony going all the way back to their encounter when he told him to eat a salad in season two. And the whole Soprano home movie debacle? There's enough there to make a move. When you know New York has a target on your back, seize power. Not hide behind that brother-in-law shit anymore. Because, well, there isn't a brother-in-law. And you're the son of the fucking Terminator. Again, it's all there. Back to this mess. They got the Gumad cleaning lady address right. We've seen her twice before. With Phil after a night on the town before their faces almost blew off. And when he was in the kitchen with Patty, arguing about clams. But the guy is her dad. Equally disturbing, by the way, that her lover would be a carbon copy of her pops. Wonder what psychodynamic therapy would have to say about that. Anyway, dad gets clipped and she's collateral damage. Big mess. Two body shots, then one to the head. Incredibly, her screams never lost their power despite two punctures to the diaphragm. All told, five bullets, two people. Literal, 
bloodbath. DHL guy, bounces, leaves the gun. Michael Corleone style. And as per Tony's wish, the Sopranos struck first all right. Just the wrong fucking targets. Their disorganization and lack of precision is problematic. Goes to Tony's casualness up to this point. Did AJ take an unexpected toll on him? Meadows' sudden changes? You're only as happy as your least happy kid. Also makes you wonder if Phil's operational prowess at executing this will be any better. Turns out it's about 50-50, as we'll see. Now, Tony smartly delegates and creates a moat around himself. But sometimes, like LeBron, you got to take matters into your own hands. If you want something done right, you got to recognize half your guys are just street clothes Charlies. Tito Jacksons. Speaking of the Jacksons, from hits, we cut to tits. Corky watching porn on a TV in a movie store. Cultural artifact predating even Blockbuster. But you can't help but see Chase and his brain trust putting a clip of their own into their critics right there. Positioning those two frames together like that. Are you not entertained? His phone rings. The guy's called to tell him it's done. They're heading out. Which got me wondering about flight records for Zips. When there's a murder of this nature and it's suspected as organized crime, wouldn't flight manifests of people in and out of Italy over a short period of time, if not determinative, be useful data points to triangulate the killer? What's this fucking con air now? Italo tells him about the woman, too. There's confusion about why a daughter would be at the mistress's place. Italo also asks about the Ukrainian speak. Phil speaks Ukrainian? News to Corky. He's some kind of double agent now, too. Corky jumps off to call Patsy, says it's done, but the love interest got in the way. Asks Patsy if Phil could talk to her in Ukrainian. Ukrainian? Fuck the wino. Smart as he is with numbers and all, an Eastern Bloc interpreter, he decidedly is not. Patsy then calls Pauly. It's done. Chain of command, detective. Also, we're seeing now that Pauly clearly didn't make the best investment for this choice. Cut costs. Maybe pocketed the difference. Who knows? Next, we're at Vesuvio. T and Carm. Eric Mangini is also in the house. Different table. Then the head coach of the New York Jets. Whatever happened there? He's with his wife. Part of me can't help but see a bit of a Nicolas Cage and Family Man alternate glimpse at what might have been for Tony and Carm, too, had he stuck with football. Heeded Coach Molinaro's words. Could have been head coach of the Jets by now. T tells Carmela he quit therapy. Again, he quit therapy. And this time he's never going back. The same way Clubber Lang might say it. Carm, for the most part, is over it too. 
A combination of, she hasn't done much for you anyway, and hangover from Tony Soprano's family curse bullshit. Only people not over this thing is us, clearly. Also, huge contrast from the pilot, right? Remember how thrilled she was that he was going and availing himself of all that therapy offered? She even mentioned something about souls, if I'm remembering correctly. Looks like she clearly missed the memo or the headline on the Yoshelson study, too. Somewhere in between books about geishas and GOP party leaders. Charmaine comes over to greet them, then Artie. Couple more pilot throwbacks for good measure. This their final appearance in the series. Charmaine brings up the fact that Meadow was in there not too long ago with Patrick Parisi, ostensibly more in the know than they are. They talk about Meadow's career prospects. If not medicine, then what? Constitutional law, they say. Carm fluffs every bit of this conversation up. No doubt, still chippy about Charmaine and her choices back in season one. Her having had a taste of Tony and deciding it wasn't for her. Carm says she's not sure Meadow has the patience or compassion for medicine. T was with her up until she said that. There is certainly some truth speak there, though. Meadow herself said medicine required too much of her. And her compassion shines in various ways, just not necessarily at her mother. And that's probably a little of what you see Carmela reflecting back. Most importantly, though, fuck if she's going to let T dress her down in front of Charmaine. The line of questioning shifts to AJ. Charmaine's smile after she asks, How's he doing? Good, good's all around. Then quick change of subject, right? Almost like Charmaine was going to get the last word yet again, all these years later. Artie lets T know Manginius is in the house tonight. T says he's got to go say hello and heads off. Maybe try and get a leg up on games for that upcoming Sunday. Charmaine confirms the Patrick thing with Carm. Says it's a little odd with Patsy being an underling and all. Yep, she's going for it. Carm says Cupid's dart lands where it lands, bitch. I mean, Charmaine who says she's going to send some limoncellos over in celebration. That's, unsurprisingly, a lemon-flavored Italian liquor. There's a pistachio variant called, wait for it, pistachio cello. Charmaine leaves, and Carm's kind of disgusted. She somehow still managed to win the encounter? Talk about getting under someone's skin. Cut to Sill at the Bing, half engaged with his paper. Polly comes over, says he's been trying to reach him. Sill said he shut his phone off. Gab got sick. Wait, what's that got to do with anything? And especially when you know there's a target on your back. Polly confirms the gray goose is gone and that the gumad had to go too. But Polly's okay with that after the scene she made at the Jersey Boys party which gets him contemplative. As the mere mention of Jersey Boys now only reminds him of his ma. Talking about the play, by the way, not the film. 
recognizing full well Clint Eastwood is asking me to make his day if I say anything off-color about the feature. Polly thinks he's going to ask for some time off after getting done what he got done. Are you Phil? Paid vacation? In this thing of ours? He going to advocate for parental leave next too? Just then, murmur. There he is. Comes over with a newspaper. Asks them who it looks like. Note a couple of things first. Where the fuck's he been? Why is he wearing a Bing shirt? He worked there now? He the new Georgie? Sitting on that side of the counter. Finally, the newspaper shows pictures of the two people the zip clipped. And one of them ain't Phil. Note the column just to the left says, New Jersey idiots. So much for that vacation. Cut to a hose draining water. The symbolism and the connection of this flows, no pun intended, back to Melfi's final session. Blue hose, blue comet. It's T's pool, but it sounds like the great falls of the Passaic River. It's being drained, clearing out the house, so to speak, shutting everything down, evicting us from this world. Recall, the pool was all about family, specifically losing his family. Melfi, the Ducks, Ranger Rick. The visual here suggests the end of his time with his family is upon us, the very thing he's feared since the pilot. The source, root cause, more or less, of his panic attacks. Now that she's out of his life, you can't help but draw a line from that to this. Jan comes out to see him after handing her baby to Carm. She says she's on her way to her card game and Carm volunteered to take Nika. Always in the back of the mind, a far cry from Parvati in Seattle. Emptying the pool, she asks. Costs a fortune to heat, he says. Her yeah, in response. Code for, she's there for money. And him saying that first, preempted it. He knew. Truth is, though, he and Carm are taking no chances. Between the belt and the pool, likely draining it so AJ can't make another attempt. Not one they can readily prevent, especially. Jenna says she had a call from Mario Diaco. Tony doesn't know him. It's Uncle June's accountant. Tax day accountant? Or judgment day accountant? Note the striking resemblance to Diablo. She calls him out on not knowing him. Says it's the one with the artificial voice box. Says he's been trying to reach you for two weeks. Uncle June's finally out of money. She says it's a fucking sin, isn't it? More religious undertones. Junior thinks the accountant is from outer space. So it's up to Janice to work this out now. Is it, though? Or is she taking one for the team and volunteering? She says he can't be at Wyckoff anymore. They're going to move him to a state facility. 
Tony just smiles, says, you're going to bail him out? She says they don't have that kind of money, but they'd contribute. Bobby feels, you know, what? Duty bound? We've seen this before, right? Janice warming up to an aging relative. Last time it was, of course, for her mother, the common denominator. She stands to gain financially. And Tony knows it. He takes out a five and hands it to her. Puts it right up close to his face, actually, like an Easter egg. Note, Lincoln is on the five. Another direct Lincoln reference. I believe at least three overt references. And something that portends Tony's fate as one similar to Lincoln. And JFK, which I'll probably get into next time. But like Bodhi said in The Wire, dead presidents. She walks off. You got a lot of balls coming to me. And as for your husband, Janice, exile on Main Street. Don't say that. You trust the guy. You bring him along. And for what? I'm with T here for a couple of reasons. He didn't have to do shit for Bobby. And Bobby harboring loyalty to his old boss is valiant and whatever the fuck. But the guy shot T. T's under no obligation to support. And Bobby probably makes enough, even with Janice wearing the equivalent of Rocco DeMeo's jacket in this scene. It's her husband's turn to be one of the toughest guys in Essex County. And maybe just pay for Junior out of his end. He feels so strongly about it. Why is it on T? Note, the sun breaks as she leaves. Just saying. Also, I believe I read somewhere that these backyard shots were shot at different times. So that could be part of it. Next, Sills up. He never comes to the house in the middle of the day. This is bad. Makes the procession over to Tony. We already know. He's going to tell him about Phil. Tony didn't read the paper, though. Because of the parabolics and whatnot, they move into the garage. Usually, these kinds of meetings happen in the basement. So this throws you a little. Sill says Polly takes full responsibility, but emphasis added that he didn't do nothing. <laughs> of course not. Also note, he's got DeWalt gear in his garage. Not that fucking Makita shit they were selling from the Miami Connect out of Chris's father-in-law's place. Also could be, after all this time he thought Cousin Brian never returned it, it was there all along. Sill says Phil is MIA. Nobody knows where he is. Nobody. Like that old E-Trade commercial with the baby. It's been four or five days. T sees it clearly now. Phil sets everything up, goes into hiding, waits it out. They never had a real shot. Going to ground, they call it. Oh. It's an expression. Comedy amidst the chaos. In this situation, too. They don't fear death. Well, except for Polly, maybe. Comes with the territory. 
kind of feels like part of them already believes they're dead. Every day is a gift and all that, sure. But you're a moving target the minute you take that oath or get in a car to drive around Jersey or even LA. Batiste summons enough seriousness to say it's time to pay attention now. Tell everybody, eyes in the back of your head, like the punk song by the addicts, but also some ironic advice coming from Tony. Break routines, collections, all that shit. Emphasis, you tell everybody. In the meantime, we keep trying, get a 20 on Phil. That comes from CB Radio Speak, 1020, which refers to somebody's location. Next, Bobby. Pulling up to a Lionel store. Sure, there's other shit there, but it's all pygmy shit at best. Actual location is in Lynbrook, New York. Store's called Trainland. Somewhere between the captain of industry deals he was working on with Tony and being one of the toughest guys in Essex County, he took a detour. They're about to go to the mattresses, but he stopped at a model train store first. And you understand now why T didn't have him run point on this one. All those financial opportunities he endeared himself to T with were just so he could fuel this addiction. From methamphetamines to model trains. That's all this is. The lack of focus is what keeps these guys from having the top-tier positions, the ball, at the end of games. You think Rocco DeMeo was assembling trains? Kobe? Gary Cooper? Whatever happened to him? And as we see here, it could have saved his life. As soon as he's out of the car, his phone rings. But he left it behind. Doesn't hear it. Now, most times that'll never happen. But the one time you forget it could cost you your life. It's like insurance. Never need it when we have it in most cases. But as soon as you're exposed, boom. There are sale decals all over the windows. The guy just couldn't resist. We see a part of another man following immediately behind him. Even though it's a distraction, you always look to make sure. Inside, the Lionels are running amok, like the Showtime Lakers on a fast break, every which way. Subways, trains, you name it. Kids and their dads in heaven. Okay, the dads mostly. Bobby's at the counter, holding a blue Comet train the likes of which neither he nor the proprietor have ever seen. Bobby suggests that if the train still ran New York to AC, Atlantic City would be a different place. And since he's on a detour, let's join him, since we only get a few more beats with him. Let's remember the little moments, like these, that were good. This Blue Comet train is a model of a famous passenger train that ran from Jersey City to Atlantic City for about 10 years until 1941. It was mostly a victim of bad timing, the stock market crash, the Great Depression. Lionel himself was so impressed with the train that he made it their flagship model set. It sold for around 70 bucks in 1930. 
up until 2017, there was also a bar at Newark's Penn Station called the Blue Comet. Anyway, the proprietor agrees with Bobby's assertion. Better class of people in AC for sure. A bit of coded racism. As there was a mass exodus of white, middle-class people to the suburbs during desegregation that deteriorated the infrastructure and led in part to the casino boom, which the thought was would revive and resuscitate the area. Hindsight, of course, shows it further exacerbated the issue. But who am I, a panelist on Bill Maher now? Jokes aside, fascinating book on the subject, The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. Does a brilliant and profound job of explaining how stuff like this played out systematically and consistently. Bobby, perhaps this is all too much for a morning at the hobby shop. Who the fuck knows? How's that for class, by the way, right? Eight grand for the whole set. He confirms the price. Didn't have the money for Junior, but has it for this. One man's life is another man's Lionel. And the only one left standing and laughing all the way to the bank in this scenario is Neil Young. The store owner slyly sneaks in a line about others being interested. Must be a disciple of Grant Cardone's closing tool tapes. Then, a cut to one of the security mirrors shows two guys in caps walking briskly through the store. Almost robotic. I call it a wire shot. As there, we see many of the characters entering and exiting buildings through the vantage point of a security screen. Naturally, with an accompanying security guard who often isn't even paying attention. Bobby says he's going to do it. Going to go for it. Like Rocky's son in five. Shopkeeper says his son will love it, too. Looks fast. Bobby resigned. He don't care. This is for him. He don't care. Not necessarily famous last words, but those were Bobby's. Who could have predicted this? Then the classic obfuscation and a masterclass in editing and tension building. The cacophony of it all. The camera is on the point of view of the Lionel set on display. The figures are in shock. There's three of them, by the way. Civilians, not including the cop. The horns, the bells tolling, were drenched in symbolism and imagery. We get a shot of the store owner putting a box on the table, and in the distance, we see the entryway. Gives you the sense he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Like the actual blue comet, mind you. Not that he could do anything to stop those guys, but that maybe he could have noticed something. Anything. The shot exists, I think to show what might have been. We see a train about to make a hard turn left. It almost feels like it's racing toward Bobby to warn him. Just then, the two guys pull out guns. They're wearing Gold's Gym and Champion hats, respectively. They're not swole or particularly athletic, but who am I, Tim Grover now? Bobby sees them and immediately squints. He sees it before it happens. And though he might not hear it, like he said to Tony, 
we hear the hell out of it. That and the sound of the trains. Also, always wondered, who was it that told Bobby, you don't even hear it when it happens? You think his dad? Or perhaps a conversation with Karen while enjoying some of her ziti together? Then, the rounds. Fifteen of them spread out over as many seconds. He was probably done after the first couple three, but they weren't taking any chances. And even though they went a bit overkill with all those shots, they did keep it respectful to the extent that he'd be able to have an open casket. No visible signs of a bullet to the head. Some of the bullets and resulting shrapnel ricochet off Bobby and hit some trains. As choreographed a death scene as you're going to get. The master shot, the -the over-the-shoulders, the close-ups, the good composition. Even the shooters. The way they come in through parallel aisles and lockstep, perfectly timing their final shots like they were playing to a metronome. Then, hands down, and turning to leave in perfect synchronicity. Gun drops as they make for the exit. Every aspect of their motion was heavily considered. And part of that, I feel, is to present their utmost professionalism when compared to the next two guys tasked with taking out Silvio. Finally, next to Bobby's head, when it rests, a sign that says Newark, suggesting an architectural size model of what will be left of New Jersey after Phil and his forces are done with it. Now over at the Bing, Sills packing up, but not fast enough for Patsy. What's Patsy's hurry? He coordinating with somebody? Sills getting ready to work remotely for a while, that's all. Grabbing last-minute paperwork so he can run his business on the road. But you wonder why the urgency now. They don't know about Bobby. Not yet. You figure it's because they know they got the wrong guy, and now New York's moving to close the gap. These moments. This episode. Crazy to think how on any given day, on anyone's whim, your number could be up. Outside, as Patsy pulls away, note there's a quick cut to him turning the key in the ignition, suggesting, of course, that that might trigger an explosive. The song in the car is Nat King Cole's Ramblin' Rose, Sills riding shotgun. Before they can make safe passage onto Route 17, They're stopped by a car. Different guys. The passenger in that car takes the wheel. Not enough urgency by his driver comrade. This is Ray Ray from earlier. The one with one of the best lines in the show. That Mortadelle's number three? They both unload primarily at Silvio. Making that conclusion, of course, because they only hit Silvio. Patsy fires back, but then runs away unscathed. Sill takes a couple shots after unsuccessfully reaching for his gun. Always wondered why one wasn't on his person. If not regularly, then on this occasion alone. Especially after that talk with Tony. This can't be it for Silvio, can it? It's not as clear-cut as Bobby's in terms of number of clips. And we simply don't get enough time to ascertain. Everybody's out of bullets, so they go their separate ways. 
These guys are decidedly not as professional as the ones that took out Bobby. Also the gall to do it on Silvio's home court versus Bobby, who was out in the wild, so to speak. This one hits a little harder than Bobby, the history alone. Apples and bowling balls, pun somewhat intended. The patrons and dancers who came out to watch rush back in once they've all been made. These two knucklehead assassins can't possibly take out all these witnesses, but they might ID a couple few later. So duck and run, guys. They, no doubt, serving as a metaphor for the masses tuning in to watch what would become of Tony. And just sounding that out now makes me understand a little more why Chase did what he did at the end. Cheering for a guy just to watch him die? What sick fucks? But people only see what you allow them to see. Dr. Melfi's words. The two guys drive by Sill, who looks about as dead as you're going to get without checking for a pulse. They roll away. Sill, if he's gone, goes out to the sound of music. Poetic. Both deaths. Bobby to trains. Sill to music. Two down, one to go. Per Butch's orders. Though, hard to believe they let Patsy go like that especially after he fired back like he did. Again, get the theory about Patsy being in on it at the end, but I don't believe it. Why would he run? Fire back. Guy's got good aim, at least when it comes to pissing in pools. Also, who's got the Tony assignment? The first two guys? The Hart Foundation tag team? Brett the Hitman Hart? And who was it? The Anvil? Or a new pair? As they drive off, they cut off a motorcyclist who amazingly pulls a maneuver more impressive than Tony getting out from under his two would-be assassins and Isabella. Saves himself from smashing into them, but in the process, gets run over by another car. Irony in a frame. Also, collateral damage from the fallout. Civilians are at risk. Notably, so far, more of them have been lost this episode than the soldiers actually at war. Next, we see Patsy continuing his sprint, like Burt Reynolds in Deliverance over here. Great sound design cut from the biker getting squished to the splashing of his feet in the creek. Potentially a throwback to Mikey Palmici's final moments. He's making a getaway. Again, I agree, bad optics. Patsy's motion morphs into the motion of Tony's Cadillac pulling up on his driveway. A cut-through motion, sustaining the energy. It's cold out. Parage's screen in a moment. We're set in January. What a way to ring in the new year. T scopes out the scene, keeps Dante, his driver, at the ready. Marches to the front door. Again, the coldness of the scene. Palpable. Inside, Carm and Roe were looking at photos from their Paris trip. A memory stick was found in Roe's Prada bag by Melissa. Who's Melissa, by the way? Gotta be your daughter. But her name was Kelly on the show. Interestingly, the actor that played her was named Melissa. Carmela points out the chef at one of the spots they ate at. 
mentions what a dick he was at first. At first? Wait, was there a second? Roe did have quite a time in Paris. Just then, T comes in, says he needs to talk. Roe goes from smiles to serious as Carm jumps up. In the kitchen, he breaks it down. A little surprised, nobody called her yet. Bobby's dead, Sills in the hospital. She's not quite as hysterical as she was about Chris, but shock can be a funny thing. T doesn't get into specifics, but suggests they're at risk too. Great intercut to Roe, happily looking at pictures. Contrast of realities happening just on the other side of a wall. Recall her trauma too, having already lost a husband and a son to this thing. She's been here, done that. T tells Carm she's got to leave until the situation is under control. Says they should split up, take the kids, he'll go someplace else. He reminds her, families don't get touched. You know that. Again, what she does and doesn't know is a point of interest. He doesn't want her sitting out in the open. Doing this indicates what I suggested earlier, that maybe Phil will break the rules and unleash hell. He did say at a sit-down once, he'd see if he could make that happen for him one day. He tells her to go to the house she just bought at an estate sale, or to a hotel. It doesn't fucking matter. Time to move. At that point, Rose up to leave too. She heard everything. Turns out, Hugh didn't make the walls of that house thick enough. Cut corners there too. Between music from the kids' room and this, including procuring a piece of plywood to mobilize AJ. And they're off. Cut to AJ chilling on his bed with Rhiannon on his MacBook. My God, the way browsers looked back then, how far we've come. We can now drag our cursors across devices with the latest iOS. Fucking internet. She's on a website called the Jamestown Foundation, a conservative geopolitical think tank. She's doing research on impending nuclear war. An interesting contrast and commentary, perhaps. We're glued to this fiction, world war wise guys, while the rest of the world is going down in flames of global terror. T comes in. Leave us alone, hun. She looks at AJ as if that's going to resolve anything. He says, hang downstairs. T says, better yet, don't. For some stupid reason, I always hear Biff from Back to the Future here. Make like a tree and get the hell out of here. You just bust in. I mean, we could have been doing anything. Yeah, but what were you doing? Nothing. My oldest just asked me for some privacy for the first time. And as devastated as I was in the moment, I thought of this scene in my head. AJ says they're just friends, but he's got bigger fish to fry. Breaks it down for AJ. In the best way you can when you're a dad with a target on your back. And the clock is ticking. He tells him Uncle Bobby is dead. Says he needs to mobilize and help his mother. Basically, don't add to the problem. AJ with a great point. What the fuck did I do? But it's the opposite of bunk, right? Not giving a fuck when it's your turn to give a fuck. Tony says there's no time for debate or questions. 
maintains his cool, all things considered. AJ Processes says he was already having so much trouble maintaining. Trouble maintaining. The weakness that oozes out of those two words. T's about to blow a gasket. Hold that shit, T. Like William Wallace's front line, baby. Hold. But then, AJ cries. First fucking tear. T throttles him. Drags him across the floor. Pulls the Xbox down from its perch and into the closet. Throws clothes down on top of him and says to pack a bag. Oh, kid just got out of suicide watch. A complete 180 from the way Tony was when they climbed out of that pool together versus now. The ability to express and convey and demonstrate these emotions, all the shades, it makes the whole thing. T catches a glimpse of what's on AJ's screen as he walks out. Global terrorism analysis. Thinking maybe he might have put a dent in it. Shakes his head, walks out. But hey, maybe he can parlay this into an internship with Harris. Talk about conflict of interest, though. Next, we're on Carm pulling up to Johnny Sachs. I mean, Jan's. Place isn't as nicely manicured as it was during the Salvitro era. But again, it's January. Carmen Meadow head inside. There, Jan is sitting opposite Bobby's two kids. Shock. Part of you has to wonder if she thinks T was behind it after the whole exile on Main Street thing. Certainly not a killable offense, but the mind goes where the mind goes. And the short sequence of her sitting there with her thoughts puts it out there. Back over at T's house, Everything's moving to the beat of a drum. Polly's making sure the doors are locked. A bag drops. It's T, ready to move. Wondered if that bag drop point of view was an homage or reference to something. Felt like it. Also, what's making sure a French door is locked gonna do during mattress times? Just saying. Again, Joey Zaza. T says, no word on Sill. Hospital ain't saying nothing. Polly said he heard from Gab's brother. Doctors don't think he'll recover consciousness. But what the fuck do they know, right? Said the same about T when he was in Costa Mesa. T moves to the kitchen, grabs some trash bags, hands Polly one and points. They're emptying cabinets, non-perishable food for when they're holed up. Can't help but also see the symbolism of them emptying the place out. Polly notices Rhiannon outside talking to AJ. She never left. Look at the stems on Blondie. <laughs> He's riding high. Nice to be young, eh? Bright sides. Especially for Pauly, who's in the clear. Acting almost like he knows it. Next, T and Dante pull into the driveway of some random house. We've never seen it before. The street isn't as quaint as Livia's, so it's not that. It's late. Polly pulls up behind them. Kind of surprised, actually, he didn't switch vehicles. That he's still driving around in his Escalade. What happened to break routines, etc.? Again, one of the things this show does so well is reveal more about yourself than probably anything else. And over the course of this project, 
have clearly revealed some curious things, centered quite plainly around who am I? Where am I going? And is this all there is? Paulie's with Carlo and the new guy Walden. They all head inside through the front. T carrying an oversized trash bag and Dante go in the back. Dante has the keys to the place. Could be his ma's for all we know at this point. But it's a soprano safe house for war times like these. Importantly, they stayed in Jersey. If you're going down, the fuck else would you rather be, right? Everybody meets up in the middle of the house. There's a lot of quiet, looking around, staking their claims on spots to retire for the night, nerves, uncertainty. T tells his driver and Polly to go, do their thing, but they stay. Where the fuck they gotta be? It's a bit of a false choice, right? Tony could also be testing them. Could just be outright loyalty, whatever that means. But also a nod to the conspiracy that an insider was involved or defected. Judas in the Garden of Gethsemane. Carlo asks if they should order a Beats. Makes me wonder if he'd use David Portnoy's app now. One bite to pick a place. Those video reviews, by the way, are strangely soothing. Almost meditative. I can't explain it. They just work. But ordering a pizza? Here? Now? Too risky, you ask me. And that's not because Carlo's suspect. Adding a variable to the mix? Giving someone a 20 on what remains of the Soprano crew? In the wee hours of the night? Petit consents. Again, not as careful as you hope he might be. He heads upstairs as we hear the regularness of life. Even when it feels like things are on the brink. Watching this countless times leaves you with the feeling everything else just keeps going on. Fleeting moments. Guys are more preoccupied with what's on their pizza adding meatballs, sausage too, and a couple of salads. No vegetarian. Then Pauly, faintly as the camera follows T up, paper plates too. We ain't got no things here. Gotta figure he has a dop kit for the ages. But again, all this as they walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Now, I'm not going to break into song and channel Coolio. One lyric's enough. But in a way, this is a gangster's paradise. Living to fight another day. With pies that have all the fixings in between. The pizza is the great equalizer. The last vestige of control we all have. No matter what's happening around us, good or bad. No matter how little sway we have over most things in life. People are people. Things are things. We can always decide exactly what's on our pizza. The long shot of T walking to his room by himself, following him from behind, 
great setup for something or for nothing. Closes the door, sits on the bed, looks out a tiny window. Another beacon light is present. Unwraps his military-grade firearm. Sets it down beside him. That's the one Bobby gave him, right? Great frame of him looking down and over at it. Is this all there is? The boss of a family hiding in a bedroom, unable to protect either family? Again, the light, the shadows, the balance. They are making a Western. Right then, we hear Bobby. You probably don't even hear it when it happens, right? Interesting how much Bobby heard when it happened, though. I sometimes wonder about the choice to show that again, other than to set up the cascade of conversations about the final sequence. T lays down on a mattress with no sheets or pillowcases, that detail important to delineate the passage of time. Next episode. Hugs his gun and waits it out. Can't help but also think of Carmine Sr. in this moment. A Don doesn't slouch in fear. Followed by Don Corleone. Act like a man. We hear a bass line. Then the Hitchcockian piano. Of tinder sticks running wild. Recall we've heard them before on this show. Tiny Tears, season one, Isabella. Tony looks at the door. The handle could burst open at any moment. The lack of coverings on the bed, driving home the idea that he's exposed. Exposed to a flame. Ignited by a tinder stick in its own right, Phil. And more importantly, this thing of ours in New York who's had enough playing small ball with the G League across the river. No scraps. The blue comet's in the sky. Part of the symbolism here is New York, whose flag is blue and has the word excelsior on it, which means superior in Latin. We've known about it all along, but now we can see it in New Jersey's airspace. Two bits of shrapnel hit this episode. One thing this penultimate experience establishes for certain, now that we officially know T's a target, we don't want to see what's left of it crash into him. That's all I got. Continue the journey. Sign up at theregularness.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.